The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Revelation 2, 12-17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to Christ. Thanks, Emily. So we are uh, right in the center of our current series on the seven letters inspired by Jesus through the Apostle John to the seven churches in Asia Minor in the first century AD. And uh, these letters could not be more relevant to the church today than they are. This is one of the four out of those letters where Jesus offers both affirmation and critique. And uh, I'll start with this. Uh, This is an excerpt from uh, an essay that Andrew Wilson released uh, not too long ago. The essay's title is The Strange Encouragement of the Church's Appalling History. And uh, Andrew Wilson writes this, in many ways the story of Christianity is full of light. Mission, education, art, health care, abolition, compassion, justice, But there's an undeniable dark side, attacking, burning, crusading, drowning, enslaving, flogging, ghettoizing, hunting, imprisoning, Jew-hating, killing, lynching, and so on throughout the entire alphabet. What What makes this difficult to stomach is that the people involved, as far as we know, have loved God, followed Jesus, and received His Spirit. Here are a few famous examples of that. John Calvin, who has given us robust volumes uh, on biblical and systematic theology and whose works are referenced all over the world on a weekly basis by pastors and others who teach the Bible, uh, also participated in in a man burning at the stake or being burned at the stake for uh, having wrong beliefs. Martin Luther, who was a man of great courage, we owe the Protestant Reformation to him. He was the forerunner of it, nailing the 95 theses to the, uh, the, the door at the castle church in Wittenberg. A courageous man stood against the establishment for the atrocities and injustices in the church, uh, was also known as an anti-Semite during certain seasons. Jonathan Edwards, Uh, one of the first presidents of Princeton University. Uh, Encyclopedia Britannica refers to him as the brightest American mind to ever step foot on American soil, even still. uh, Gave us the religious affections, gave us the accounts of the 
the Northeastern Revivals, and so on, uh, along with George Whitfield, another revivalist. Both of them also owned slaves. John Wesley, famously known as the founder of Methodism, uh, was an absentee husband. A lot of other stories like that, some of them in the Bible. Abraham, the father of all the faithful, offered his son, the life of his one and only son, to God, offered his one and only wife to sexual predators. Jacob, the father of the twelve tribes of Israel, was also a habitual liar. David, the king of Israel, the famous king of Israel, of the son of David fame, gave us roughly half of the Psalms, also abused his power in order to get a woman in bed with him who was not his wife, who was married to another man, and then used his power again to ensure that this man be killed. Peter, one of the apostles of Jesus Christ, a duplicitous man, Jesus refers to him in one sentence as the rock upon whose testimony I will build my church. In the next sentence, he calls him Satan. Many of us, in our experience of Christianity, of Christians, of churches, maybe many of us have been in churches all of our lives, and in the church, we've experienced the greatest sense of belonging that we've ever experienced anywhere, deeper friendships than we've ever experienced anywhere else, a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, a sense of shared mission, a sense of shared vision. But the church has also been the place where we have also experienced more betrayal and more rejection and more isolation and more guilt and shame than we've experienced outside of the church. It's a mixed bag. And so Jesus comes in in this letter to the church at Pergamum, and it essentially says the same thing. I've got a twofold message for you. On the one hand, I'm so proud of you. On the other hand, I am so dismayed by you. And let's walk through that. Why is he proud of them? Why is he dismayed by them? And, and how is he here to help them and also us? First of all, he's proud of them. He's proud of them for their conviction, for their fierce loyalty to the faith. Verse 13, he says, I know, I see you, I know, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed or who was martyred among you where Satan dwells. And so there's a phrase that he uses here, Satan's throne. And so, so let's look at both of those words, Satan's throne and Satan's throne. First, Satan's throne. Pergamum had a large hill. It was about a, a thousand feet above sea level, and that, that hill was filled with different temples to different Greek gods and goddesses. It was covered with temples, and the most famous of all of those temples at the time was the temple of the Greek god Asclepios, who was known as the god of healing. And, and this, this Greek god's symbol, Asclepios, was a serpent, a snake. And Jesus is drawing a comparison between that god 
the most famous god in Pergamum, and the serpent who slithered into the Garden of Eden with lies and deception and an, attempt, and, and an intent to deceive and to kill and to steal and destroy. So, so this God that, that, that purports itself to be a God of healing is actually a God who is going to ultimately destroy you the closer you get to it. And this is true of all the other gods that are not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's Satan's throne. He compares any false God, any non-Jesus Christ God to the devil himself, a liar masquerading as an angel of light. But, the, but he also uses the word, and I think very intentionally, throne, Satan's throne, because this hill in Pergamum was also the place where the very first temple was built to the Roman imperial cult. The imperial cult was essentially Roman nationalism, worship of the state, worship of the emperor, your first loyalty going to country, and every other loyalty goes beneath that. This was the messaging, and Augustus was the emperor at the time. And some emperors actually didn't believe their own press when, when, when the people referred to them as Lord and God and, and supreme loyalty above all loyalties. There were actually some emperors, the sane ones, when, when they made their grand entry into a town or a municipality, they hired servants to sit right next to them to whisper in their ears while everybody else was worshiping them, and the servant was hired to whisper these words, you too, sir, are mortal. Never forget that you are not different than the people who bow down and serve you in the ultimate sense, you too are mortal. But the foolish emperors, which was most of them, demanded that the people refer to them as Lord, Savior, and God. Caesar is Lord was the Roman creed, which actually gives fresh meaning to verses like Romans 10.13, Romans 10.13. If you confess with your mouth, or maybe this isn't 10.13, this is a different, maybe it's, I can't remember the verse, but if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. That was a fiercely political statement. Because to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord is to defy Caesar who demanded that you say Caesar is Lord and Caesar alone. See, there's this hierarchy of loyalty that Rome, the Roman state demanded. If you are a nationalist, if you're a committed nationalist, you're going to be okay. If you're not, it's not going to go well for you. There's got to be a hierarchy of loyalties, and Caesar must be your number one loyalty above all loyalties. And then underneath that, there are your other loyalties, like your family, your religion, your, your private religion, that is. Your public religion is the state. Your private religion can be whatever you want it to be. Your friends, your work. You can arrange these loyalties in any order that you want, but your number one must be Caesar. And if Caesar is not your number one, you're going to pay the price. We see this uh, played out earlier in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, where you've got Nebuchadnezzar's, or Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon who erects this statue of himself, and the demand of every citizen is to bow down and worship that statue to demonstrate that Nebuchadnezzar is your number one loyalty, that nationalism is your first religion. The thing about Nebuchadnezzar is that he would let you, 
have any other religion that you wanted to in private, as long as you kept it to yourself. As long as you didn't talk about faith and politics at Thanksgiving, you were okay. But if you defied Nebuchadnezzar, he would throw you into a fiery furnace or into a den with hungry lions. Then you fast forward to the Roman Empire, and it's the same. They wouldn't throw you into a den of lions or, or into a fiery furnace, but they would put you on a stake and burn you alive if you didn't worship the emperor above all other loyalties. And so Jesus mentions his faithful witness, Antipas. This is a man who died as a Christian martyr under Emperor Domitian, for saying Jesus is Lord instead of saying Domitian is Lord. He wouldn't recant, and they burned him at the stake. My faithful witness. You know the word for witness in Christianity is marturion, which is the word we get martyr from. Our witness for Christ in the world, there's always going to be a cost when we're witnessing for Christ faithfully. You know, Luther in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, said it this way, the body, may, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And to this, Jesus says, I commend you. I'm so proud of you because in response to my dying love and loyalty for you, I went first. In response to that, you're willing, if you're called upon to do so, to respond in kind. To say, Jesus is Lord in a climate that insists that you say Caesar is Lord. Maybe even in some of your churches, the highest loyalty is to Caesar, and the second loyalty is to Jesus. And it should not be so, and I'm proud of you, Pergamum, that this is not so in your churches. But he said, nonetheless, I'm offended by your compromise. I have a few things against you, he says. This is verse 14. You have some there in your church, not everybody, but you have some there who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, who we, we've heard mentioned in a previous letter, and Balaam. So, so Balaam, if you go back to Numbers chapter 22, you'll see that Balaam is a compromised prophet who had gotten in bed with the state and had incorporated into the message of Yahweh and of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob pagan ideals, pagan uh, cultural values, sort of putting a little bit of culture and faith together and, and, and turning them into one thing. And, and, and what Balaam specifically encouraged was friendliness to pagan idols and sexual immorality. So, Pergamum was compromised in a similar way. You know, they're affirming of all the Christian doctrines. They would, they, 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 would, they would say the Apostles' Creed together if they had the Apostles' Creed. You know, they, 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 were, they were affirming about the grace of God, but they were dismissive of the truth of God. They were affirming about the doctrines of God, but dismissive about the ethics of God. And Jesus said, this, is, this should not be so. And he, he breaks it down into three sections. First, your city is full of idols. There's, one, there's an idol for every single human desire. You know, just pick whichever one you prefer. If your greatest desire is for power, then Zeus is your God. If your greatest desire is for pleasure, then, 
Dionysius, the, the uh, goddess of wine, or Aphrodite, the goddess of sex. Choose one of those. If children in the nuclear family are your first and foremost love and loyalty, then Artemis is your god. If wealth is the most important thing to you, then, then Plutus is your god. The message is this. Worship Caesar. Put your country before your family and, and before your religion and before everything else, before your vocation. But after that, after that, follow your heart. Look inside of you. Find your truth. Choose your own path. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's what we might call, it's what sociologists call expressive individualism. Your truth comes from within you, not from without you, except from the state. But outside of that, your truth comes from within you. Don't let anybody tell you that your truth is inferior to their, tr is inferior to their truth, and don't you dare tell anybody else that their truth is inferior to yours. See, in public, your allegiance must be to the state. In private, you can follow any God that you want, any creed that you want. It goes like this. There's, there's my faith, but there's also the real world. There's my Christianity, but then there's also the, th the way that things really work. There's this binary, uh, you know, sort of separation between the sacred and the secular. It's a dichotomous way of thinking. And if you live in Pergamum, you, you might say something like this. My city of Pergamum, it turns, it exists, it functions around the idol feasts, the feasts that are dedicated to the, to the gods of Rome. That's where the movers and shakers are. And if I don't participate in these idol feasts, then I can forget making partner. I can forget advancing. I can forget being included in the important social circles. I can forget finding a spouse. I mean, really, is it that big of a deal? I mean, God knows my heart. I mean, God knows, based on my private religion, where my heart really is, but He wants me to be happy, doesn't He? And so, of course, I have to cooperate with the idolatries of, of my culture in order to survive. This is about survival. To which Jesus says, this is a lie. This is satanic. God wants you to be holy a lot more than He wants you to be happy. And in fact, you can't be happy truly without being holy. The two can't be separated. But the serpent says, oh, come on, be reasonable. It's just a piece of fruit. It's delicious. It's juicy. Don't be such a fanatic. You know, blend in. Enjoy yourself. Cut yourself some slack. It's all good. You know, this, this prominent god, Asclepius, the, the, the god of healing, promises healing, just like all the other gods promise healing. You know, Zeus promises healing to your weakness. And Aphrodite promises healing to your frustrated sexuality. And what are some of the other gods? The god of money promises healing to your financial stress. 
And Asclepius just promises healing overall. But the truth of the matter is that these false gods don't deliver on their promises. In fact, the closer you get to them, the more you realize they're not there to heal you. They're there to bite you, to poison you, to sicken you, and to diminish you. They're not going to make you bigger. They're going to make you smaller. They're masquerading as angels of light. They're masquerading as healers. These good gifts of God that you have somehow turned into ultimate things. You know, it's like you've taken something intended by God to, to be like protein and fiber to you, but you've, you've, you've turned it by elevating it to the place that you've had. You've turned it into something more like cocaine. You think it's going to make you feel better, but it's going to eventually nauseate you and wreck you. You know, this Balaam and Nicolaitan influence, this has to do with, with consensual sex with whoever you want to have it with. That's what it boils down to, both of those sort of angles on, on ancient teachings. It couldn't be more modern. As long as it's consensual, what's the problem? I mean, aren't, aren't we being a little bit outdated when we talk about, you know, being promiscuous with our money but conservative with our bodies instead of the other way around? What about freedom? You know, Bishop N.T. Wright answers that question this way, sexual morality is a matter of the call of the Creator God to faithful man and woman marriage, reflecting the complementarity of heaven and earth themselves. That is the theme which finally emerges in the great scene at the end of Revelation. Married love is a signpost to the faithfulness of the Creator to His creation. The reason sexual immorality is so often coupled with idolatry as it is here is because such behavior points to different gods. It's a toxic mixture, and the Christian has no business getting involved with it. Another way to say what he's saying here is if you, if you substitute the biblical vision for sex and marriage with something else, you, 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 you tear into the fabric of the universe itself. Because how did history begin? It began with a marriage between a man and a woman, between Adam and Eve. How did history continue? It's right there in Ephesians and throughout the Scriptures. Christ is the bridegroom, we are the bride, and marriage is a picture of that. Husbands and wives with this, this reciprocal love and respect and, and, and submission dynamic that's going on within marriage. And then at the end of history, we're told that, that that the, the, the second coming of Christ will involve a bride coming down out of heaven from God, beautifully dressed for her husband Jesus. It's, it's metaphor and it's reality to tell the story of history and the story of God, and if you mess with this, you mess with the fabric of the universe, and when you mess with the fabric of the universe, you mess with your own soul. The law of God bites back. It bites back. When we go against the design for which we were made, we find ourselves on the wrong side of history, not on the right side of history. You know, as N.T. Wright says, it's a very historical statement about marriage and sexuality and what it's meant to be. And then Jesus says, you're acting, Pergamum, like there is no such thing as judgment. And Jesus says, my words are a sharp two-edged sword. That's an echo from the book of Hebrews. If you don't repent, Jesus says, I will war against you with the sword of my mouth. Whoa! Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, you know, Lamb of God, well, He's also the lion. He's a physician, 
but he's also a warrior. You know, his sword, this word from his mouth, he says there are two edges. The first edge, if you don't submit to the word of my mouth, I'm going to go military on you, Jesus is saying. Don't think I won't. Any sin against my law is a sin against my love, and a sin against my love is a sin against yourself. You're just cutting yourself off from your source of health and healing and of life. And I'm just going to leave you alone in your sin. You, you want to know what wrath is? Wrath, wrath from God? It's not what you think it is. Wrath from God is when God says, okay, we're going to try this your way, and we're going to see how it works out for you. I'm going to leave you with your sin. I'm going to hide my face. I'm going to remove myself from this situation. And I'm going to leave you on your own with, with your own choices and your own directions and your own trajectories. You know, follow your heart, follow your dream, find your truth, etc. Let's see how it works out. You're, you're, and you're going to find out. Your sin will never love you like I love you. Your sin will never forgive you like I, I forgive you. Your sin will never heal you like I, I heal you. It's going to have the reverse effect of everything that I've come to give to you. But because I love you, I'm going to let you hit bottom and I'm going to back off. You know, there, there are a lot of people who say, maybe some in this room, this is why I'm not a Christian. This judgment stuff, it's why I'm not a Christian. Are you thinking deeply enough if that's your cop-out? You know, Bertrand Russell, the famous British atheist philosopher, wrote this book called Why I'm Not a Christian. And what it boils down to, the answer to that question, why he wasn't a Christian, is if you read an hon- the Gospels honestly, you realize that Jesus talked about hell a lot more than he talked about love and heaven. And, and I, I don't want to have anything to do with a God like that. It's just like John Lennon. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, o- above us only sky. The problem is this is just imagination. The reality is what Christ said. You know, if you read the Gospels, this vision for no judgment, you will find this vision for no judgment is completely incompatible with Christianity. And if you've ever been a victim or if you've ever loved a victim, you'll be on board with this. If you reject judgment, you've lived a smooth sailing life, or you're, you're repressing some stuff seriously, truly. If you never get angry at anything or anyone, you're repressing something. If you have an addict in your life or somebody with an eating disorder, because you love them so much, you're going to be angry. You're going to be angry at, at self-destructive choices that, 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 that hurt the person that you love. Love always comes with anger. Anger always comes with love. It, it just depends on what is it that we love and what is it we're angry about. But if we love a particular person, place, or thing, we're always going to be angry at whatever it is threatens the, th- the flourishing of that person, place, or thing. And so Jesus is saying these fierce words because of how much He loves you. If you're a Christian, you've come to terms with this at some point. You understand that the force of Jesus' words is not because He is against us, but because He is for us. The issue at Pergamum specifically was that people who had not compromised are saying nothing to the people in the church who had. It's reminiscent of the first Corinthian letter where there's a man in the church of Corinth who is regularly betting his own stepmother. And, and, and Paul says in this letter, this is unbelievable. You're, you're, proud of the, the, you're proud that this is happening in your community. Why would they be proud? Well, 
look at how tolerant we are. Look at how inclusive we are. We're the most tolerant, inclusive church that, that there ever was here at Corinth. And Paul says this, this is enablement, not love. This is tolerance gone bad, not healthy tolerance. You should be mourning this situation because love detests that which destroys the beloved. You get aggressive in order to rescue. And Jesus finally says, I'm here for your healing. I'm the alternative to the serpent. I'm the seed who crushed the serpent's head. Remember, Jesus might say, my blade has two edges. One edge is me getting military on those who resist my word and try to recreate their own truth and their own reality. The other edge of the blade, rather than being military, is surgical. I'm going to still cut you, but it's going to be to remove toxins, to remove cancers, to remove anything and everything that threatens your life, to get the idols out. My method is careful, not violent. My method is restorative, not punitive. And I'll replace what I dig out with my scalpel with three things, a white stone, you know, in courts of law, uh, it, it, the verdict is pronounced and, and, and the defendant is either given a black stone conferring guilt or a white stone conferring innocence and freedom. Jesus says, whatever your track record, you don't have to dig yourself out of the hole. You're not in a doghouse. My mercies are fresh every morning. You can start right now with a white stone that declares you innocent, holy and blameless in the sight of God. And this is precisely what Paul writes about in the second Corinthian letter in the first chapter. Comfort this man who was once sexually immoral and yet he's responded to your to your, your, your confrontations, and he's back in your community. So now, your task with respect to him is to make sure that he feels no shame for what he's done in the past, but he lives in the light of Christ and in the light of this white stone of innocence and covering and righteousness and blamelessness that Jesus has achieved for him. I'm giving him a new name, Jesus says. I'm giving you all a new name, a new identity as daughters and sons. This means that God loves you and He esteems you just as much as He loves and esteems Jesus Christ. It's true. If you're in Christ, you're credited with everything that belongs to Christ. And then finally, hidden manna, the bread of deliverance, the sweet bread that God raised down from heaven after delivering the Israelites from another oppressive totalitarian dictator, the Egyptian Pharaoh, he now has manna for us, and yet it's no longer hidden. It's visible, it's seen, it's tangible, it's tasteable, it's digestible to remind us again and again and again, week after week after week, that life and healing and nourishment come from Christ alone. Jesus is Lord. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, beside you and apart from you, there is no other. Some trust in princes, some trust in chariots, some trust in the nuclear family, some trust in wealth, some trust in power, some trust in pleasure and in image. 
but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen.